Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Come and find a seat. You guys are obviously all staying in here with me. You're the lucky ones. <laughs> okay, um, let me ask you yourself. My name's Stuart. If you haven't met me, I'm the leader of the church here. And if you know me on any level, you'll know that I have several loves in my life. Um, first one, obviously, I love Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been a follower of Jesus for many, many years now. The second love of my life, obviously, is my wife, Melanie, who on cue walks down to the front of the church. And obviously, I have two small boys that I absolutely adore who are currently tearing up our kids' work. After you've got through those two, and you get to sort of the important loves in my life. Um, and that one of those is American football. I think it's the greatest game on God's earth. I've been a fan of American football for 32 years now. I used to play it when I was a teenager for many years, um, and it's a passion of mine. I love it. And if you know anything about American football, the end of the season, when it all kind of gets together, they have a grand final. They call it the Super Bowl. It's um, televised all around the world, 100 million plus people watch it. It's a huge sporting event. And this year, my team that I've been following for 32 years were in the final. They were made it to the Super Bowl. So obviously, as a fan... I had to stay up and watch it. Now, if you want to stay up and watch it live on the telly, you have to make some sacrifices because it's broadcast at silly o'clock from the United States. So you sort of kicks off at like half 11. And if you watch it all the way through, it rolls around to 3, 4 in the morning, depending on kind of, you know, how the game goes, how it runs, the timings. And so obviously I was committed to this. So this week, a couple of weeks back, I did this. I stayed up and I watched the game. And uh, my team winning. And obviously... To watch the game, I had to get my shirt on, my team shirt. So I got up in the middle of the night, uh, left Melanie in bed, and I got my shirt on, and I went downstairs to watch the game. Now, they were playing another team, the Atlanta Falcons, who were very good, my team, the Patriots, and it didn't go well. <laughs> don't know how else to say it. It didn't go well. They got annihilated. First half, they were 21-3 down, and that's just a bad score. It doesn't matter what game you're playing. When you're 21-3 down... It's not good. And so they were getting thrashed, and the commentary team all at halftime were saying, this is the worst performance we've ever seen from this team. They are just getting annihilated. The other team are doing amazingly. They're, they basically won. They just have to kind of coast in, and they're going to be the Super, Super Bowl champions. And I was sitting there with my dad watching, thinking, I want to go to bed. <laughs> this, is, this is terrible. This is terrible. I want them to win. I'm behind them. I'm believing they win, but it's just looking awful. They're going to get annihilated. Then we watched Lady Gaga come on do the halftime show. And I thought that was really dull. I couldn't be interested in that because they were getting thrashed. The second half, come on, we can come out. We can do this. They come out. What happens in the second half? The other team score. They're suddenly 25 points down with only about 15 minutes left in the game. The biggest deficit ever overcome in a Super Bowl is 10 points ever. 25 points down. And I'm sitting there with dad like, I'm going to bed. This is terrible. What do we do? And all the commentary teams are doing. And then, and then the amazing thing happens. They scored a touchdown. They scored a point. So suddenly it wasn't looking quite so bad. It was still a huge deficit. But then they missed the extra one. You know, they kick an extra point and they missed it. And you're thinking, this is just not going to be their day. So what do I do? Do I give up? Or do I push on in faith? And I stayed up. The hours ticked on. It got later and later. And then guess what happened? They scored again. They scored again after that. And suddenly it was level. And the other team hadn't scored at all. They had erased a 25-point deficit in less than 15 minutes of play, which is staggering. It went to sudden death overtime. First team to score wins. Guess what happened? They won. (laughs) 
they won. They had overcome the largest deficit in Super Bowl history, considered one of the greatest Super Bowls ever. They were lauding it, the greatest game, the greatest comeback, the greatest team. And I got to sit there and watch it all. But if I'd gone to bed at any point, I'd have missed the great ending. If I'd given up, if I hadn't pushed through, if I'd thought this is it, you know, I'd have, I'd have missed everything that happened. And what we're going to look at today is what the writer of the Hebrews is talking to his, his followers, his um, readers of his letter about. You don't give up. You don't push through. We've seen 10 chapters of him outlining Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than this. He's better than Moses. He's better cleansing, better sacrifice, better covenant, better offering, better priesthood. Everything's better. And now we're moving into the final few chapters, 11, 12, 13, where he's basically exhorting the believers to keep going. Don't quit. And we've got to uh, chapter 11. And if you know anything about kind of Hebrews, you know what chapter 11 is about. It's about this whole um, hall of fame of faith of men and women who've gone before, who've persevered and kept going, um, following after Jesus in the face of great difficulty um, and suffering sometimes. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at faith in the unseen, faith in delay and disappointment, faith in the face of opposition, and the faith in victory and apparent defeat. Big idea of what we're going to look at is the Christian life is one characterized by faith in the person of Jesus, his works, and his promises, but it isn't easy. The Christian life is one characterized by faith in the person of Jesus, his works, and his promises, but it isn't easy. So if you've got a Bible, let's just read the first few verses of chapter 11. Okay, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered up to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commanded him by accepting his gifts, and through his face, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, was commend- he co- condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. All right, this first section, faith in the unseen. What we've got here is he's now laying out this whole idea of um, he's been saying Jesus is better, Jesus is better, and saying so kind of, so what, what are the consequences? And he basically uses this tactic of going through naming people who have basically persevered by faith in past. And he starts out, beginning in verse 11, describing what this faith is like. He talks about the assurance, the confidence, which means the reality, the substance. What is the substance of this faith? Well, it is a conviction, a proof and evidence in something unseen, something beyond this world, something that's looking forward ahead of us, something that we don't see right now but is coming. And this, this theme of unseen runs through that little section that these men of faith of the past kind of um, had as they, as they followed the Lord, they followed Jesus. And as a result of it, they got a commendation, it says. So they gained approval, particularly public approval, before God for having the faith of pushing through, of believing, of not giving up, of not turning aside, of following on after God. And he starts, he talks about Abel. Abel, you go back to Genesis chapter 4. You have Abel and Cain, the two brothers. They offered sacrifices. And it says Abel's 
was accepted. Cain's wasn't. As a result, if you read the story, Cain ended up murdering Abel. Went very wrong right back then because of his... He, he didn't follow the law. He didn't follow it. He didn't offer it in faith. And actually, it, his sacrifice wasn't accepted as a result. It inspired genesee uh, in, um, in Cain, and he ended up killing his brother. But it says Abel had faith. He, he gave his sacrifice in faith. That was commended because he believed in God. He listened to the law of God. He believed in the unseen God who had commanded him. And he said he, um, he had faith and it was commended to him. And as a result, he said his blood still speaks, which means that although he was dead, although he was died, you know, murdered, it actually still speaks to us even today and actually what he's doing. He is a man of faith who pushed forward. Then it talks about Enoch, uh, Genesis chapter 5. Enoch's a strange character because you've got this whole list in Genesis. And it talked about Enoch. Um, it says he walked with God and then it says he was no more. God took him. Or everyone around him, if you read the section in Genesis, it basically says they died, they died, they died, they died, they died. Enoch, he was there and then he, he was gone. God took him and after that he keeps saying he died. He died and basically he's another one who had forward, active-looking faith in God and as a result of it, he never actually saw death. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that's like. It's a bit of a mystery to it. And the, the, the writer of the Hebrew isn't actually that bothered in telling us what it is. He's trying to make a point. And the point comes in the following verse. He says, without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. And Enoch was an example of someone who had this forward-looking faith, just like Abel before him. And they are those who actually believed in this God. They took him at his word. They believed what he said. They chose to follow him. They chose to set their life on him. And it was an active faith that they had. And as a result, without that faith, you can't, ble- uh, you can't please God, it says. And it says you have to believe that God exists if you're going to draw near to him. And he rewards those who diligently seek him. He rewards them. What is the great reward that God gives those who seek him? It's not money or possessions, it's his presence. It's himself. That's what he gives you, that sense of his presence. That's who he is. He is our greatest reward. And it says those who we have faith, we draw near to God, we believe he rewards with his presence who he is, those who seek him. And ultimately that's it. And Enoch's that. And then he goes on to Noah. Noah we're probably a lot more familiar with. Noah was a great one, man of faith, because God gave him some pretty specific instructions that on the surface were absolutely balmy. You know, you live in a desert land, build me a really big boat, Noah. And it's going to take decades to build this boat. It's going to take your entire life mission is to build this huge ark of what you're doing. And he had to believe in something, the God who's unseen, but also the situation. He says, because I'm going to bring a judgment on this earth. And you're just going to have to trust me that it's going to come. And it does. And what happens as a result of that? He is saved. He said he was commending him he became an heir of righteousness And as a result, he was saved. His faith, his trust in an unseen God caused him to act. His forward-looking faith caused him to build the ark. And as a result, him and his household were saved. And we have it recorded. And so we've got men there who are recorded in uh, the word of God as examples for us to follow who have this forward-looking faith. They don't give up. And they look through this unseen God in what we do. And for us as New Testament believers, this same principle is something that we have to grasp. Because if you read... Around in your Bible, you get these interesting words. You get the words of Jesus at the end of John's Gospel, which I've always found quite amusing. The risen Lord. Who'd like to have seen the risen Lord Jesus? That's something they're like, I'd like to have been there when he appeared to his disciples. Like, upper room. Here I am, risen from the dead. I came through the walls, the locked doors. I appeared among you. I've got holes in my hands, and there's a, a great big 
knock in my side where they shoved a spear in, but I am alive forevermore. Wouldn't that have been jaw-dropping if you're one of them? You were Peter, James, and John. Thomas was there. Thomas didn't like it at first. He's like, no, you didn't. Missed it. Don't believe it. Then he appears for Thomas. Thomas, here I am. I'm alive. And Thomas is like, my Lord, oh my God. And then he says this. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. That's basically every other believer who ever lived. So we're more blessed than those original disciples in terms of we believe, but yet we haven't actually seen. The Bible talks about we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see it in that sense like I can see you. There's something more. We look beyond something that is in this world. We look beyond to a better world. But it's not a blind faith. It's grounded in historical kind of fact and testimony. But there's something that's happened in us that we look beyond this world. The Bible says we've been create new creations. The old has gone as new has come. We are now alive in Christ and we're dead. And we now know that we know that we know that we know that Jesus is alive. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. That's why we call on him. And even the newest believers got that because they have the Holy Spirit living in them. doesn't matter whether you've been a believer you know, five minutes or 50 years. have that assurance that God has saved you. But actually our faith is not based on what we see. Our faith is based in not what we can measure. There's something beyond that that we have to look to. We have to have faith beyond this lifetime, looking ahead to see what's there. We get that laid out for us in the Word of God, but we have to choose to take it at His Word and believe it, knowing that what we don't see now, we will one day see in fullness. All right, the next thing. We have faith in the unseen. The second, we have faith in the midst of delay and disappointment. Let's go back to the text. Verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of that place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs to the promise of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, and she considers um, him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and as good as dead, were born many descendants, the stars in the heaven and the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of those sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. 
All right, the author now moves on to Abraham and his kind of immediate descendants. We looked at Joseph about 18 months ago in details of that back end of Genesis. But that kind of Abraham and his immediate descendants cover most of the book of Genesis. And you have Abraham at first, and he is commended as being another man of faith. That phrase by faith, I think, comes up something like 18 times in this um, passage. So it just keeps going. He's now talking about Abraham as the one. And he was given staggering promises. If you read his life, it's in Genesis chapter 12. Huge promises. The whole of the world will be blessed through your offspring. And your offspring are going to be multiplied like massive. They're going to be like the stars in the skies. So there's going to be innumerable amounts of them. And this land, by the way, this land that I've called you, that's going to be yours. These are huge promises giving them. And God called him to leave his home. It said he went out from his home. He was living somewhere. He said, come out from there. I want you to come to this new land. But in doing that, he said, come into this new land. He said, but you're not going to have this land. This is yours. But actually, Abraham never, never possessed it in his lifetime. Imagine that, saying, I'm going to give you something. So all of Sutton Coalfield is yours. But you're never going to have it in your lifetime. That's effectively what he said to him. And then he said, not only are you going to have this land and you're going to live in it, but guess what? You're going to live in tents. Tents talk of temporary accommodation. And not just him, his children were going to live in the tents with him, Isaac and Jacob. And they were heirs to this same promise. So this is all yours, but you're not going to have it and you're going to live in it temporarily. You're going to be moving around in tents. You're not even going to be able to build a permanent home. You're going to live a nomadic existence in this world. But it says Abraham was looking forward. He had faith because he knew that God was faithful Despite the delay, despite what was coming, he knew God was faithful. Then it goes on to Sarah. When you say to someone, a husband and a wife, you're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there's a certain implication on the woman there, isn't there? You know, if that's going to happen, things have got to happen, and particularly for the lady in the, in the relationship. She's got to have children. It says her so you had to wait for those descendants. If you clock the time between Abraham receiving the promise and them actually having the child, it's like decades. It's just, and they were old in the first place. So it goes on and on. It said, but Sarah too, she had faith. She believed in God's faithfulness. And as a result, the promises came to pass. But not in their lifetime, in the future. It says they all died in faith. Which means they were given the promises, but they never actually saw them come to pass. Can you imagine what that would be like? Staggering, breathtaking promises that God has given you. Imagine you're in one of those meetings and the prophet comes and picks you out. And you get all these great prophecies. And, oh yeah, it's amazing, God's spoken wonderfully. He said, but you're never going to see it in your lifetime. Can you that being a bit of a... Mm. Bit of a disappointment, but that's what Abraham and Sarah lived with. They got these promises, but they never actually saw it in his lifetime. The land they were told to possess, they never got in their lifetime. It says they were strangers in that land, which was actually theirs. God had promised it. But their faith was looking forward to what? A heavenly one. It never wavered on the temporary, on the kind of the immediate, because they had their eyes fixed on faith, on the God who had given it, the unseen God, and said, we're going to hold on regardless, regardless of the delay, regardless of the disappointment, regardless of the pain of waiting to receive what you've promised, Lord, we're going to keep going. And then finally they get the promised descendant, Isaac, arise. Hey, stars in the sky, we got one. 
It's our son, Isaac. And then you get that great story where Abraham then is asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac, who at the time, they reckon, was probably maybe early teens. So he wasn't like a baby. He was, starting, he was growing. But even in that, Isaac, uh, Abraham had faith because if you read the Genesis account, when he's told to go and sacrifice his son, he takes the wood and he takes his servant and he says to the servant, wait here, the donkey, we're going over there. And then he says, when we return... When we return. So he knew he was coming back with his son, even though God had asked him to sacrifice him. If you read the story, you find out that God provides a ram. But even that, in that situation, he had supreme faith that God would do something. Either raise Isaac from the dead or there was something would happen, would intervene. He wasn't going to quit, even though he was the promise, Isaac. He was a descendant. They only had one son. It had to come through Isaac, his son. And then he goes on and lists um, the further sons. Isaac had a son, Jacob, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And the line of faith continues. They still continue to believe. Despite living in tents, despite temporary um, accommodation, despite not possessing the land that they've been given to their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather, they keep holding on to this promise. They're looking ahead. And even when Jacob's dying, he's saying, actually, you need to go back to the land. Even when Joseph is dying, when they're down in Egypt, we preach through that whole section on, on Joseph's life, they end up in Egypt. They're not even in the land anymore. But even as he's dying, he says, you take my bones back to that land that God has given it when you leave. And then 400 plus years later, they did finally leave, took Joseph's bones back, as you read the beginning of the account in Exodus. But they all died in faith, despite long delays, despite um, disappointment. And the author is writing to us here, to the believers he was writing to, to us reading it, that there is an encouragement to keep going. Don't quit along the way. When there is a delay on what God has said he was going to do, there's a delay on the promises when it's disappointing, when it doesn't seem to be working out the way you would like it, don't quit. If I'd gone to bed at half time, I'd have missed this fantastic sermon illustration. You know, (laughs) I'd have missed watching my team win and just be able to crow about that for years. Um, But if I'd have quit halfway, it wouldn't have happened. And he's saying, don't do it. And wait can be one of the hardest things you've ever heard to hear. Actually, sometimes no is easier. Because if someone says no, it's like, well, that's not going to happen. If they say wait, you're like, how long? I have two children. The most cruel things I can say to them is wait. It's like torture for small children. Yes, you can have it. Just wait 30 seconds. And I will get it for you. But the, the trauma that that causes, we're having... A little bit at the moment, um, the Lego Batman movie's out. Has anyone heard about this? Better be quite good. Levi, our eldest, he came to us, and he's never, ever asked to go to the cinema or anything like that. But he came and said, Daddy, I've seen these movies out, the Lego Batman. I love Batman. I love Lego. Can I go and see it? And I said, let's talk to Mummy. And we talked to Mummy and said, yeah, we can, we can do this. We'll fit it in um, in half term. And so he says, right, should we go today? And I said, no, you're going to school today because it's a school day. He said, in half term, we'll go. He said, yes, you can go, but you're going to have to wait. Right, and half, so he, for him, broke up Friday, half term began Saturday. Right, we go there. No, we're not going today. We worked out we're going to go Friday. It's my day off Friday. We'll go on Friday. So he's like, talk to us. How many days till Friday? So we had to work it out, and I think it was like six sleeps. And he gets up in the morning now, only five sleeps, like going to see Lego Batman. And you're like, oh my word, this is, just, this is just a nightmare for him, that he's living for this kind of, you know, and then eventually we'll take it, and I'm sure it'll be a great time. But it can be like that for us. 
I've worked out, I've taught five-year-olds and I've passed adults. I've worked out kids don't grow up, they just bodies get bigger. We can be just as bad, can't we? We don't have tantrums quite like children, but we can be just as, come on, God, you said you'd do something or I want something to happen and you've got to wait just, just a few days, a few months, whatever. You've got to wait and we push and we push and we push. And sometimes the encouragement we need is keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up on it. And that's what he's trying to say to these guys. Keep going, keep going. I know some of you are believing God for things, things God's spoken to you. You're praying into situations. You want to see things happen. We're all living with the future. Go to Revelation 2021. Doesn't that look better? One day we will see God face to face and there'll be no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears. And we will be with him forever and everything will be sorted. All our pains, all our suffering, all our problems, all our anxieties, all our fears, everything gone forever. And we're waiting for that. And we don't know how long that's going to be, but we have to just keep going, knowing that one day we will hit it, we will see it, it will happen. But in the meantime, we just need to keep going. We cannot give up on the promises. We need to keep together on that one. What about the next one? Faith in the face of opposition. Let's move on for Abraham and his family. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the traces of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkled, um, sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith in the face of opposition. This moves now to Moses and the Exodus generation in the book of Exodus. You read out that and the following books afterwards. And so you've got Moses. It actually begins back with Moses' parents who were men, uh, a woman of faith. And they saw they had their son and they didn't want to obey the king's edicts. That's the Pharaoh who proclaimed that all the Hebrew boys that were born had to be drowned, had to be killed. Moses was one of those. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to defy it. And you follow the story and the baby then gets put in the river in the basket, gets found by Pharaoh's daughter and he raises up. But actually as Moses grows in the palace as one of the Egyptians, a kind of royalty, what, talk about lucked out. You want to grow in one of the best places. You'd have been educated, have had wanted for nothing, facilities, all this sort of wealth at his disposal. He says he chose not to be identified with them. He knew who his people were. He knew what God had called him to. He knew where he should be. He knew where his God was. And he said he will not have the fleeting, the fleeting places of sin that were had in Egypt. He had a greater reward, a greater treasure, which he was looking for, which was God and his promises and who he was. And he would rather suffer that reproach. And he describes it as the reproach of Christ, because ultimately that's who he was looking forward to, Jesus himself. And he said he'd rather suffer there and face the anger of Pharaoh and Egypt and all that that meant, and he would rather be pushing forward to who God was and all that God have had in him. And then we, um, we go forward and we see um, the people of Israel who left um, under Moses. And if you remember the story, there was, did Pharaoh let them go willingly or easily? No. 
It was an absolute all-out smackdown fight. There were plague after plague, ten in all. Let my people go. No, let my people go. And then finally, the final one, the Passover, the death of the firstborn, which was an act of faith on the people to sprinkle the blood on the lintel so that they wouldn't die. Would be, and it was a precursor to Christ pointing forward. It was constant opposition all the way. And then even as they finally broke free and they all left, what did Pharaoh do? I'm sending my, I changed my mind. I'm sending my army out to get all of you, just to wipe you out in the desert. God parts the Red Sea. They pass through that, and then the army is destroyed as they go after it. There was constant opposition in what they were doing and how they were trying to follow God. Their faith was tested again and again. It says they stayed faith, excuse me, faithful to the promises. Moses was faithful in the face of opposition. Israel was faithful in the face. And then you get the final one, Rahab. She's fascinating. Of all the people you could put in here, you put in Rahab. Rahab shouldn't be here. Rahab was a Gentile. So she wasn't a Jew, one of, God, one of God's covenant's people. She was a girl, sorry, at that kind of time. They were secondary to the men. And she was a prostitute. And it says it quite bluntly there. She dwelled in Jericho, which was a pagan foreign Gentile city which was in the land that was promised that was going to be destroyed is under God's judgment but it says by faith she welcomed the spies the two who came in from Israel to check out the land she looked after them helped them and as a result she um, was saved from destruction and actually comes into the lineage of King David who then is in the lineage of Christ that's basically a nice nice thing in there that is there is no one outside God's reach There is no one who cannot have faith in God. There is no one who cannot come to Jesus. The fact that she's there is such a great reminder from all these other people we kind of revere as mighty men in the past. And, oh, aren't they amazing? And you get Rahab, and she is pulled straight into God's plans and purposes and is recorded for eternity in Scripture. If you're here and you think for any reason I'm outside God's plans and purposes, God couldn't use me, God couldn't save me, God couldn't couldn't have anything to do with me because of what I've done, Read about Rahab, and you'll find out that there's nothing that God can't turn around. No situation, no person, no one who's outside of his care and his control, no one he cannot save. Some of you are praying for friends, family members, thinking, are they just too far from God's grace? No. No, they're not. No, they're not. And the encouragement is keep going, keep praying, keep loving them, keep calling out to the Lord, don't give up. But let's go back to this. This is in the face of opposition, which constantly comes. For Ahab herself, she would have had opposition in terms of fear of those looking for um, the, the spies and everything. But as a church today, we face extreme opposition from the sin, flesh, and the devil, the three things that the New Testament talks about. Our own indwelling sin, that we're tempted by, our flesh, which is tempted just to go away from God and seek pleasures in this earth, and there's the devil, the spiritual enemy we have out who hates us and wants to destroy us. And the reality is if we try and live by faith and not by sight and put our trust in Jesus and his promises and his plans and try and follow him, we will face and hit opposition time and time and time again. It will come against you. Do not be kind of like surprised when it happens. Do not think, oh my goodness, what's going on? It's going to happen. You are in a war. People say things like the Christian walk is like a war. No, it's not. It is a war. It absolutely is. You have enemies who want to destroy you, and they're trying to draw you away from Jesus. That's all they want to do, draw you away from Jesus. Put separation. They'll remind you of your past sins and all the, thing, all the mistakes you've made. 
And I'll keep reminding you. And I keep saying, remember what you did? God couldn't ever use you because of those things you thought, those things you said, the things you did this morning, the way you shouted at your kids, the way you treat your colleagues at work or your boss or all those kind of things. Try and draw you away from Jesus. He'll try and get you focused on the things of this life, the earthly, the temporary, fleeting pleasures. Pursue your career. Pursue your raising your kids. Make that the focus of your life. The next qualification, whatever it is, the bigger house, it doesn't matter. He'll do anything he can to try and take your eyes off Jesus and pull you away from him. He might even try and kill you. doesn't happen often. This We're fairly kind of safe in Christianity in this culture, but there are believers around the world who just, will just kill them. If they're trying to follow Jesus, that's the easiest way to stop them. We'll try and kill them. And we're not to focus on the temporary. Do you, um, if any of you are on social media, why? No, but if any of you are on social media, you get those things that come up in your news feed where people like put you know, funny, funny comments. And, and if you've got Christians, they put up Bible verses. And they're all about, you know, God loves you and it's great. And they're wonderful. But here's one of the ones I'd love some people to start just posting because they'd just be fun. Here you go. This is 1 Peter 4.12. I never see this one on a T-shirt, a mug, or a tea towel, or on my Facebook feed. It says, Beloved, good start. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. That's brilliant, isn't it? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Expect it. The enemy wants to kill and destroy you and everything about you and everything about your walk with God and everything about your faith. And there is sin to tempt you. There's the flesh that will just say, just go and make life easy for yourself. Don't get up early and read your Bible. Five more minutes in bed is fine. It's not going to be the end of the world. Anything to draw you away from Jesus. You are in a battle. How, are we going to, how do we deal with this? How are we going to work this battle through? Well, one of the things we do, if you look back at the previous chapter, verse 25, what did he say? Not neglecting to meet together. That's one thing you can definitely do to help yourself in the fight. Don't give up meeting together, being part of the community of God's people, part of the Sunday meeting, part of our life group, part of just that structure. The worst thing you can do is pull yourself out of that. It's like if, you know, use the army analogy. Where's the safest place with all the other troops? You don't want to be out on your own. The enemy can pick you off. At least if you're with others, you stand more of a fighting chance together. Bible reading, prayer, repentance, Life of that, praying for one another, confessing sins to one another, being about one another, loving and being alongside one another helps us in that battle as we face opposition. All right, last one, and then we'll finish. Faith in victory and apparent defeat. Last few bits. Verse, what are we up to? 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, become mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. 
And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, and apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, you've got, you sort of, they're, they're, this, the author's been writing and giving details, and in the end he's almost like, give up, I'll just give you some really short kind of bullet points. And first of all, he lists a bunch of victorious heroes. These are the people we like. These are the stories we like to tell. These are the great ones. And he mentions Gideon, the judge from the book of Judges, Judges 7, who defeats the Midianites. Barak, another judge who defeated um, the enemies, uh, Caesarea, and others, along with Deborah. That was fantastic. Samson, who delivered Israel from the Philistines. Some great mighty deeds there. Uh, Jephthah, who defeated the Ammonites. David, of course, one of Israel's greatest kings, killed Goliath and many other victories. Samuel, who's one of them. The last of the judges, also the first kind of of the regular prophets. And then he has this blank term for just prophets. You know, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, etc., etc. As they go on. And they were all men um, with active faith in God that were just like, were following him. And they saw great victories. The sort of victories we'd love to see in our lives. The thing we'd love to write about. Yeah, we did all these things. And it lists some of the things they happen. And there were things that kind of, it said, the first three things they list there sort of um, were things that were taken of generations to achieve, conquered kingdoms, informed justice, obtained promises. And they're sort of like, then there are single events. They stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, kind of this stuff makes good movies. You know, wow, really exciting things. And there's work through individuals. They were, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And they even had, the, it says, women received back their dead by resurrection. There's the widow of Zarephath and the, the Shunammite woman. They're actually children came back to life. They were raised from the dead. Incredible stories of, of faith and God working in their situation. Mighty, victorious things. And I would love it to end there. I'd love it to say, and that's the end. Let's move on to chapter 12. But he doesn't, which is just annoying. Because then he talks about suffering heroes. Those who have followed by faith, but actually it's not going well at all for them. Because what does it say? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to whether others suffered mocking, mocking and flogging and chains and imprisoners and stoned and sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. And it says they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So many horrific things. And from an earthly perspective, they were abject failures. There was defeat there, wasn't it? That's not not victorious. It just just doesn't look good to go out there and say, I'm going to serve Jesus and then get sawn in two for what you're doing. That's not good. That doesn't work well. That is not good. So they suffered much. Many of them had to live kind of in caves. They didn't even have homes. Going back to Abraham, they had to to run and hide because people were after them. They were killing them. And the reality is the walk of faith sometimes has victories and it sometimes has things that look like defeat. When you try, you step out, things go, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't happen the way you would played it in your mind. It ends in a kind of almost like a disaster. That's not how I expanded it to here. That's not how it happened. Things happen. You hear about churches folding. You hear about church plants failing. Things, you know, people getting sick. People dying. Things happening from other countries where Christianity is being persecuted. Horrible, horrific things going on. But actually in both those situations, the charge from the author is you keep going by faith. When you have huge victories, which we all love, and when you have apparent defeat, we are to keep going. Because if you just, I'll, 
I'll still, mentally speaking, next week, I'll just look forward into the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 12. It says, basically, keep going. You keep looking to Jesus regardless of what life throws at you, even when it looks really great and it's exciting. We're in that period right now as a church. I don't know if you realize that. We started the church a few years ago from a very small group. He's grown and multiplied. Look at us now. We have a stage. We've got light. This is, we're impressive. Look, woo. things are going well. But we don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's going to hit us. But regardless of what's going to happen, we're going to keep going. And even when it's looking like apparent defeat, I put apparent in there because it's never a defeat in Christ. It's never wasted. Nothing is ever wasted. Everything ultimately will be worked out for good in God's sovereign great plan. Even if we don't understand it now, we will understand it in eternity. And we'll see that actually God was working everything wonderfully for good um, and for his kingdom. And as they finish, and they look, as we look at the end, it says they were commend, commended for their faith. They didn't receive what was promised. They didn't get the fullness of everything. And actually, but talking about us, we have received them, that fullness in Christ. We're actually better than all those ones listed because we've received Christ himself. They were looking forward to it. We now live in the good of that. We haven't received the full fullness of Christ because that will come uh, when he returns. But that's what we're going to do. And so the message I want to give to us as a church, I, just, I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what's going on, but I want you to keep going. I want you to keep going in your faith. I don't know what's happening kind of in your world, what you're dealing with, what you're struggling with, what's kind of on your plate. But keep going. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Again, another one that probably doesn't appear a lot, on a lot of details. It says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light, momentary, as opposed to with eternal weight. There's the contrast. Light, momentary, eternal weight. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The tops, really, for most of us, is 80 years. Tops. Some of you are going to get a lot less. Some of you get more. That's it. Tops. When you think that's it, max, compared with eternity. It's nothing. It's a breath. It's a click of your fingers, and it's gone. It's all over. But what is waiting for us in eternity beyond this life is something beyond comparison beyond our understanding. We get glimpses as we read the Bible, as we worship, as we pray. We, we, we touch it just with moments. But actually there is something far greater and far bigger. But we need to keep going. We cannot quit. We cannot stop in the face of opposition. When the, the lies come, when the slander comes, when people say things about you, try and break you down, wreck your faith. When we just have to wait and wait and wait and wait and then keep waiting, we're to keep going. When we can't see the way forward, God, where are you? We've got to trust and know he is there because he is the unseen God who is with us by his spirit and his presence. And even when it just looks like everything has gone down the pan and it's all falling apart in total disaster, we know one day victory will come. Because what was the greatest defeat the world ever saw? It was a cross just outside Jerusalem, wasn't it? Utter disaster. Everything went wrong. The Messiah, the chosen one, had come to his kingdom, his city, his temple to rescue his people and they killed him. Utter disaster. The sky went black, it says. And then what happened? It is finished, he said. And the temple curtain tore in two. 
and the way was open. And then he came back to his followers and says, I'm alive. This was all planned from the beginning. Victory. I have victory. And we see it in our lives now, day by day. But we will see it in fullness one day. And that's awesome. And in the meantime, we keep going. We keep going. Do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray. Can the band come up? And we're going to finish. I just want to just close your eyes. I mean, I'm serious when I say I don't know what you're going through. I really don't. And I'm not trying to be trite or funny with that. I don't know what you're struggling with in life right now. But what I do know is for all of us, it's the same charge from the writer of Hebrews and from Jesus himself is to keep going. Keep looking to me. Keep focusing on me. I don't know what's coming. your past. I don't know what you're doing now. I don't even know what's around the corner next. Monday morning. Who knows what's going to kick off? Who knows what's going to start? But we're to keep going. And I'm going to pray for us as a people that in whatever we're facing now, whatever we're kind of dragging from from the past, whatever comes to us in the next weeks and months, just we're to keep going, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you have, that you have given us a heads up that we aren't to be surprised by the fiery trial. That what we're facing is light and momentary in the grand scheme of things. Lord, but it doesn't mean it's not real or painful. Lord, and I ask you to give us grace at this time as we look to move forward as your people in our own lives, as a, as a body, as a church together, as we deal with the tough things, we deal with opposition, we deal with delay, we deal with di- disappointment, we deal with the fact that we just can't see what's happening next. Lord Jesus, I pray you give us grace as your people to keep our eyes fixed upon you as our saviour remind us of the cross where total defeat and utter disaster was turned into supreme victory Lord I thank you for that cross that makes all this possible that we can know you, we can love you we can come and stand before you Jesus that is just wonderful news and Lord whatever we're going through now God we just ask you to give us grace open our eyes to see you afresh today Give us a fresh reminder of your promises, your word to us that says, I am with you always. I will never leave you and forsake you. I will turn ultimately all things for good. Lord Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Height, depth, angels, demons, past, present. Nothing can separate us from your love and your purposes. Lord Jesus, and I want to thank you that one day we will see you face to face. When this short life is over, and the pain is gone and the worry is gone and the anxiety is gone and the sorrow is gone and we just spend eternity with you enjoying the fruits of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to look forward to that. I want to say we love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.